Welcome to the Brattle Bookshop Podcast. Stories about books, old, rare, and out of print, and the people who buy, sell, and collect them. I'm Jordan Rich, and I'm here with the man himself, Kenneth Gloss, proprietor of the Brattle Bookshop. And what a storied history this wonderful store has, Ken. Well, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's been in my family since the 40s, and uh, it goes it goes way back in other families. But the store, as everybody knows it now, uh, really was 1949. My father was getting married. My mother had $500 that she had from being in the service. They bought half interest in the Brattle Bookshop. And, you know, it was something that my father needed and he wanted something more permanent. But buying a business, going out of business, I don't know how <laughs> how stable that was. Can we talk about where it was located? Because yeah. it's in a different place now, but tell me. Well, one of the things that we always get is someone's in Harvard Square on Brattle Street saying, where are you? <laughs> right. And, you know, why aren't you here? Well, we've always been in downtown. There was a little side street called Brattle Street, which was in the Scully Square area of Boston. Actually, to make it even more difficult, the street doesn't even exist anymore. That sounds typical Boston, by it's, the way. It's where Boston City Hall Plaza is now. And, of course, <laughs> we're a famous store that started there. But, you know, there was this other store called Radio Shack that had their first store just up the street from us. But, of course, they're not well. As well, well <laughs> you've outlasted them in all of their stores, so congratulations. But— so was your dad uh, into the subject matter? Was he a book lover to begin he, with? My father was a book lover. He read incessantly. And what he did, he used to, he never had a, a steady job per se. Actually, he was more political. He was on a soapbox in uh, Boston Common, he used to speak. But what he used to do was go from one bookstore to another bookstore to another bookstore, and he'd see a book in one store, and he'd know that the other store had a customer. So he's sort of what you call a book scout. And he would buy it and maybe sell it for a couple of more dollars down the street. And he made a slight living in that, did some odd jobs and so on. But my mother sort of said, no, that's not going to pay all the bills. <laughs> so they bought the store and uh, half interest. They very quickly bought full interest. And my father built the store with his great love of books, his hard work, his knowledge. And he was a character and a showman. Mm. And uh, we've had seven different locations over the years, mainly due to urban renewal. But it's interesting because in the used book business, it's a learning part. You never know everything. So you learn as you go. You buy some things, they work, they don't others. But one of the real interesting things that really got my father off the ground is there was one customer, his uh, name was Hill, and he wanted Harvard. He was terrified of communists. I mean, just absolutely terrified of communists. This was, you know, the early 50s. Uh, Red Scare days. Red Scare days. But he wanted Harvard to have the best collection in the world on spies and military intelligence. And uh, he was buying books for my father, who when, when that customer wasn't there, was on the Boston Common speaking on a soapbox. Yeah. But... This customer is a little strange. When he came to the store, he'd call ahead, and he'd say, do you have books for me? My father said, yes. But you'd have to get every other customer out of the store because he was afraid there would be a communist there when he was buying the books. Wow. Was he related to Dulles or something? No, he, he was actually <laughs> – what he was, he was related to a man named J.J. Hill who built the Northwest Railroads. Okay. So he was quite wealthy. He lived at the Ritz-Carlton. He had a suite. Okay. Okay. But what would happen is my father would say, yes, we have books, and he'd sell them a bunch of books. And then he'd donate them to Harvard. And then Harvard would have them all. And then Harvard would sell them to a store in Harvard Square. 
in the store in Harvard Square knew that my father had a customer who would buy books on military and spies and so on. They'd call my father up. My father would buy the books from them. And this went on. And then he, the guy would uh, call so up it again. So it was a rotation, a rotation here. Harvard didn't want to say anything because the man was quite wealthy and a little eccentric. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to upset him. Hey, it made him happy, right? <laughs> it made him happy. So this went on for about a year and a half. Wow. It sort of got my father over the hump. Then Harvard decided, maybe we'll send a librarian with him when he goes buying. So that sort of cut it down. But the reality is it turned out well for everybody because when this gentleman died about 10 years later, he left Harvard $20 million. It got my father over the hump of the first year. And the man loved buying books and coming in. So everybody was happy and it got the start. So that's that's God sort of bless Mr. Hill. That's sort of how the store got going. And then as the urban renewal in the downtown area in Scully Square got torn down, a few years later my father bought a store called Colesworthy's on uh, Corn Hill, which was the next street. That goes back to the 1820s, Mm. Um, and my father took it over and was running two stores at once. Then Brattle Street got torn down, uh, and then my father had the store there. Then he got moved out of the Sears Crescent building, but they were going to tear that building down. It's sort of a nice curved building looking over the government center. Yes. Uh, My father had this huge fight to save the building, and he did except he got kicked out. Uh, <laughs> urban renewal, eminent domain, and then he was around the corner uh, on Washington Street. That got torn down, and he was finally uh, moved over to West Street. And it was interesting how we got the building there. It was an old 1840s building, and um, my father had a lot of young customers. Uh, some of them were, you know, on the fringes of society. In any case, the man on West Street ran a card shop. Uh, it was called Green's Cod. But upstairs, what he did is he ran, sold marijuana and drugs and all that. He got busted. The judge said, I won't send you to jail, but you got to get out of town. He, a bunch of our customers came. This is the perfect place to move. <laughs> and, and, and my father ended yeah. up buying that building. And uh, the interesting thing is every time my father would move, when he moved out of Brattle Street mm. to Cornhill, he would run sales. He'd move his best books over, and then he'd run sales. Yeah. Half price, dollar, 50 cent, quarter, dime. Last day of the sale, though, everything was free. And he would literally have hundreds of people line up with bags, packs, satchels, whatever, ring a big bell. People would go charging into the store, grab what they could grab. He'd ring the bell again. That group would leave. The next group would come in. And he gave away over 250,000 books oh, like that. Oh, my God. My question to follow up was going to be the inventory and moving from one place to the next. And and we'll talk about how you keep track of inventory. But that, that I never knew that. He yeah. gave away so many books. And, and an interesting thing is my father did go to BU for a few years, but he had to drop out because of finances and mm-hmm. so on. But he studied... PR, journalism, and so on. And he, he always had a knack for getting, you know, something. He said, well, the giveaway, he'd heard about people doing that, yes. but it would be great publicity for the new store. When he had his first giveaway, it, we thought it was going to be a disaster because he had it, the press was, eh, but it was Alan Shepard was supposed to go up that day. The first, But what happened is it was a cloudy day. So they postponed it two days. All the front pages had reserved all the space, 
and what else was there? A man giving away thousands of books. Well, so he got huge publicity. That, that's what they call an act of God in, in, the, in the case of the Brattle Bookstore. That's true. And and uh, I was going to say, you mentioned PR. He was a master. This is George, now you're dead. He was a master of of talking up the subject of books when he appeared on radio and television. Yeah. And uh, he was very, very open to, you know, getting feedback from listeners and and answering questions he was a he was a go-to guy well he loved talking about books i do too but then what he did this is another when we were moving from washington street to west street at the end of the giveaway there were books left over Mm. uh and you know what do you do with the leftover he hired a covered wagon with a cowboy and a horse team and on the cover of the covered wagon it said go west book lovers go five west Mm. street brattle bookshop they filled it up with books he drove, they drove it, he had a, someone driving it, drove it from the end of Washington Street where the store was near City Hall, up Court Street, down Tremont <laughs> by the Boston Common, to West Street where West Street is. I know. And then back down Washington with my father sitting in back, throwing books out the whole way. <laughs> now, the superintendent in charge of traffic was a friend of his, told him he could do it all morning. But within an hour, the city was in an absolute standstill. They told oh, him to stop. Gosh. He didn't care. He had gotten his point. It's like across. the P.T. Barnum of, uh, of booksellers. Well, you know, but that's— A showman. There, there, was, uh, there was actually one time someone referred to him as the bubbling Barnum-like Barker of Brattle yeah, Street. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and <laughs> so in any case, the building we moved into on West Street was a 150-year-old five-story wooden building absolutely crammed full of books. Mm. Uh, and my father loved it there. He had piles of books all around him. He'd have, you know, be sitting there sort of presiding his glasses over the, at the tip of his right. nose. And I remember he had one customer come in, and, and this was a, a, a good—a lot of customers become good friends. But he was a little hard on money and all that, but he loved the old movies, absolutely loved the old movies. And we got in a whole stack of— 1920s and 30s movie magazines, which was this man's love. And they weren't cheap, but, you know, we were giving him a good deal. He's, my father said, just take them all and, and you owe us this. And the man sort of looked at him and said, well, what happens if something happens to me in the meantime, like if I have a heart attack? My father said very calmly, that will be two of us. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you know, you build the customers yeah, and, and yeah. so on. Uh but then the next thing that happened sort of in the progress and the moving of the store, um, and we had a lot of great customers in and going out and buying books. But in February of 1980, I got a call because I had started then, and I'll give a backtrack a little we'll, on how right. I got into it. We'll come it. back to you in a minute. But uh, I got a call at 4 o'clock in the morning. The building was on fire. And literally— it burned to the ground. I remember coming in that morning at four in the morning with one of my cousins. It was February 1st. It was a bright, bright, clear day. Uh, the wind was blowing a little, and we came up Washington Street, and we parked uh, down near Beach Street, which is about four mm-hmm. blocks away. We couldn't even walk up Washington Street. The smoke was so thick. We had to go around mm-hmm. the corner and come in from the other side. It literally burnt right to the ground, I mean 100%, mm. to the point where uh, the uh, fire chief came up to me and said, do you want to get your demolition company or ours, but it has to be, the rest of it has to be taken. Now, I didn't have a demolition company, uh, and I said, well, it has to be done, you know, just get it done. And uh, after uh, the demolition, 
uh, in, we found $75,000 later in 1980 for the demolition, and our insurance was like $50,000 mm-hmm. total. Uh, you know, it was it was pretty pretty rough. And how you lost inventory? Everything. We lost everything, it, absolutely everything. The building, wow. almost no insurance because at that time, West Street was not the greatest street, so you couldn't get insurance. Mm-hmm. Anyways, what happened is we got huge support from customers, the city, and so on. We found a storefront a few doors down on West Street. We rented folding tables. We got a contractor in within a month. Uh, we were ready to open, and people, customers either sold, gave us, donated books. Kevin White, who was the mayor at the time, yes. came down with a carload. And Kevin White did us a huge favor when the store first burnt down, because he had been a good customer. His mm. mother had been a mm. customer. He used to come down to the store a lot and sort of go down in the basement where he could get away from everybody. It was sort of like a break for him. But he um, helped get our phone lines up and running right away which we never could have done. And so after this tragedy, people were able to get in touch and say, I can get you these books, I can get you those it books. It was an outpouring, I remember, and and it must have done your heart so well to see that, to know that people, first of all, cared about you guys, but also cared about the product. Well, not only that, and, and another thing that I came to realize uh, was that If something like that happens, the greatest thing that can happen is that you get so busy trying to go to the next phase that you don't have any time at all to think about it. (laughs) To grieve. Uh, Yeah, literally. Yeah. You had to to fight back and you had to build from scratch. But the the outpouring was really impressive. Oh, it was impressive and it really sort of made it. At the same time, you must have been just absolutely bereft about losing things that were so valuable. it, It absolutely was. But like I said... Not being able to think about it was the best thing. <laughs> and it also made me, when it was all said and done, realize if you're healthy, you can deal with everything. But I remember the opening. The mayor came down with one of his assistants as an aide, Barney Frank. Oh, was, my goodness. Was, was, I remember those days when Barney was just working for the mayor. Just an aide on the sure, side. Sure, And And we uh, we slowly but surely rebuilt the stock. We it went. Uh, it was hard, but it really went well. And then four years after the building burnt down, uh, the place where we are now came up for sale, and we were friendly with the man who owned it. He, he actually it was an interesting. He owned a shoe store, and he only sold shoes in sizes two to four, women's shoes. I mean, tiny, tiny shoes. Mm. Most of his business was by mail, but women who were that size, they could only get children's shoes. They couldn't get fashionable shoes. So 90% of his business was by mail order, and he wanted to move to California, and he felt if he didn't move then, he was not going to do it. He approached us. He knew we were looking. He said, Caldwell or whatever is going to take it. They're going to put it on sale for this. I'll subtract 6% because they're going to take that from me anyways. If you want it, do it fast. And it was next door to the lot of land we still had that burnt down. Right. So in 1984, four years exactly afterwards, we moved the stock to the new location, and uh, that's sort of what we have now, sort of the old Dickensian type of stuff. And you, indeed, and I'll have you describe it in more detail in a second, but you've got that space to put the books outside. Yeah. Which is still, I mean, you don't see that much anymore. There's, there's some places in New York maybe, but yours is the one where people can browse outside on a nice day. Well, of course, most people don't own an empty lot of land next to the business in the the downtown. Let me ask you the question about 
your life in books? And obviously, you grew up with your dad and this amazing story. Was it always your intention to follow in his footsteps? Were you a bibliophile yourself? A a lot more complicated than that. First of all, my parents say my first word was book. It might have been. I don't know. I'm sure they were talking about him all the time. I was born in 1950, so a year after they took over the business. And I did work after school in elementary school, junior high school, high schools, uh, summers during college. Now, I have a degree in chemistry from the University of Massachusetts. I was going to get a doctoral degree from the University of Wisconsin. But in 1973, I needed a year off. I had worked that summer at a chemical laboratory and realized what industrial chemistry was like. It's one of the best internships you could ever have because it made me realize maybe I don't want to do this. Uh, And then my father's health wasn't that good. So in 1973, I wrote the school and I said to my father, I'll take a year off and just see how this goes. That was that year was over forty years ago. Uh, Just and, like George Bailey in the building and loan, you came back and exactly. you never left. But you know the reality is, when you're working in a small family business, there are a lot of. I used to get fired constantly. <laughs> My, I mean, it was almost uh, every week or two, I would end up getting fired. I mean, my father and I had very different personalities. And it just, but then what I realized is what I used to do is I'd get fired. I'd go up to the upper floors, two or three hours, stay out of my father's sight, come down, sort of slink back downstairs. He'd still be angry. I'd be upset. And it was just, it was difficult. And I finally realized, wait a minute, if he's going to fire me, why don't I leave? And I had the day off. <laughs> and I, but what I really realized is that after I did that two or three times, I stopped getting fired. <laughs> <laughs> so, good psychology uh, there. It just happened to work out that way. How do you describe the store if, if I'm arriving in Boston, I've never been, and, you know, the way it's laid out in, in words, how would you describe well, it? Well, I call it sort of the old Dickensian type of store, outside stands, which, again, you won't see very many places, at a dollar, three, and five. Um, and that's always open unless it's raining or snowing. And then uh, inside, there are two floors of general used books on almost any subject area that you can possibly think of. And then a third floor with rare books, autographs, manuscripts, first editions, leather bindings, and so on. And uh, there are it's right in the downtown, which when we first moved there on West Street, Fortunately, it was a, it was a depressed area, and we could afford to move there. Now it's there's a hotel next door. There are uh, student dormitories across the street. Uh, there are restaurants everywhere. Oh yes, it's Mo- a very very busy area. The Mass Bar Association still yep. there, right Mo- across the street. Movies and theaters. Yeah. So it, that type of business, the large old general secondhand bookstore, is a dying business, especially in the inner cities. And the reason it's dying is not that people don't like books, buy books, sell books, read them, and so on, but the property value has gone so high in the cities that rent has gone so right, high right. that old bookstores, which I can assure you are not the most efficiently run businesses in the world, <laughs> one right after they have gone out of business. And like I say, we bought our building in the early 80s, so I hope to do this for years Bri- to come. Brick and mortar in general is tough in this day and age yep. in the economy, but you're right with something like that. But yours is a destination place for the regulars and for the first timers, right? People will come to you They could always go to Barnes & Noble and buy the latest bestseller, but they're looking for something when they come to you. Oh, absolutely. And and 
people will always go to a used bookstore, so they can be a little bit out of the way. I mean, the area's improved around us, but we were a little out of the way. And one of the fascinating parts about the business, and this I do almost every day, uh, is go out to houses and estates and buying, and you never know Mm. what's going to come in uh, what you're getting in. And that's what people come in because they want to see. We have customers who come in literally just about every single day. Matter of fact, we have one customer who calls in sick. When he doesn't? When he, well, <laughs> he's always afraid that we will put a book on the shelf there, that yeah. day that he's been looking for. <laughs> and people, I remember one day, one time, it was in February, it was in a snowstorm. I bought a whole 2,500 books on parapsychology. I mean, it was a really good library. We put it down the basement, and the next day it was snowing, and I was getting a call from Nebraska. I got a call from New York. I got a call from London saying, I heard you just got it. And I'm going, I didn't tell anybody. They're well, par- but they're parapsychology. They're supernatural, you never know. <laughs> By the way, how, is, how has it all changed since the web? I mean, in the sense that... Word of mouth is one thing, but then social media is a whole other thing. Is, is that the the supernova explosion? Well, we could. I'll do a whole podcast we, yeah. in the future on that, but it's made a huge difference. Right. Uh, matter of fact, that in addition to the uh, real estate is what also is pushing used bookstores out of business. Uh, there are so many books that people would buy in the past, 20 years ago, because they wanted the information. But who buys an encyclopedia? Who buys a dictionary? But it's even beyond that. Art books, if you just wanted to see the pictures. Books on antiques, on reference. I had a a friend, a very good customer, come in recently. He's moved out of the year. He came in. But he says, you know, I've retired. I want to take up tennis again. Do you have any books on tennis? And we looked, and there really wasn't much right in. I had him bought a library from a tennis player Hmm. recently. And he said, you know, actually... YouTube's better anyways, because when he wants to know how to play tennis, he looks. So there's that whole group of books that they're harder to get, uh, harder to sell because people don't need them. There's also, and this is an effect that people might not think of, 20 years ago, you'd walk into a bookstore, and a used bookstore in particular, and you'd see a book on the shelf and say, oh, this is on a subject that I know, and two years from now, I might need that book. Even if it's a little high price, I'm going to buy it because when I need it, you know, sort of the professor in this study with the books all around, they have it so that they can Mm. pull it. Well, now they go online and there are two things. First of all, they can Google if it's just the information. But even more so, they go online, they go click, click, 50 copies of that book come up and they go, ah, I don't need to buy it until I need it, which means (laughs) in most cases you never buy it. So that's a real downward pressure, also distribution and finding these books that were, quote, rare, were just hard to find. They're not that hard to find. Prices come down. But there's still people love to books, love books. They love to browse. They, with some of the millennials, they become retro. They they do that. Just and, like they're buying vinyl records. Exactly. They're buying actual books and not looking at a screen. I just want to ask you uh, one more thing about the store and the way it's working internally. It's very much like like a library, isn't it? In the sense that you're, you're, you and your staff, I would imagine, know where things are and have things cataloged, or am I being a little presumptuous? Uh, well, to a degree. <laughs> to a degree. We, we put books in the, by section and subject okay. and area and things like fiction by alphabetical and poetry. And they stay, in, they stay 
that way to a degree, but people look at the books. The other th big difference between a library and us is we don't want the books there. Nope. Quite honestly, uh, we want the books to go and sell and the Absolutely. next one, whereas the library wants to keep it there. So <laughs> hopefully we have turnover, and, and we honestly do. But the other thing is we're in a fortunate position in that, as I said before, we go out almost every day buying. I was supposed to pick up 3,000 books this morning. We postponed that for a week, and I only picked up 1,000 books at another estate on science fiction. But it's the new books coming in that people want to see. They, If you walk into a used bookstore two, three, four times over a period and the stock hasn't changed, they're boring. You don't come mm. back. So it's that new stock. And somehow there are enough people in Boston, in this area, that we can buy books, sell books. And we travel all over New England. Right. The hunt is always on. Oh, right? that that's, for me, that's the most fun. <laughs> I, I, You never, and again, there are a million stories about people, places, areas, books. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Well, we'll be talking with you about some of those people very soon. And if people out there listening to this podcast have any questions about buying and selling about what's in the store, about appraisals, they can find out a lot more at the website. Well, they can, uh, they can at the website, brattlebookshop.com, all the contact information there, right. but they can send us pictures. Uh, people a lot of times are wondering, gee, I just have this book, I inherited it, what do I do? Or they have libraries and they want to sell them. That's what we do every day, and we encourage it. And uh, conversation is likely to occur. It's, in other words, people call in, there's always something different, right? There's always, always. something different, and <laughs> there are some real characters, and there are some stories that go with it. And quite honestly, we encourage it because the more that comes in, the better it is for us. Or if anyone has questions about certain subjects or so on, maybe it will be a future podcast. Who knows? Well, every subject is and beyond is part of the Brattle Bookshop experience. Ken Gloss, thank you for sitting down, and we'll do more of this. This is fun. I love talking about books. All right. You've been listening to the Brattle Bookshop podcast. I'm Jordan Rich. Take care. <laughs>